Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases until the end of September. Download the Crypto.com app today. T-Quorum is a weekly virtual series about all things Tezos. Every Wednesday, join thought leaders, innovators, and blockchain enthusiasts for presentations about the latest advancements that help the ecosystem grow together. Sign up and learn more about the virtual series at tquorum.com. Today's topic is the travel rule. Here to discuss are Dave Jevons, CEO of CypherTrace, and Sean Jones, senior partner at XRAG Consulting. Welcome, Dave and Sean. Hi. Hi, Laura. Hello, Dave. Hey, Laura. Great to be with you. Before we start, disclosure that CypherTrace has been a sponsor of my shows. To begin, let's have each of you explain what you do and how you came to work in crypto. Dave, do you want to start? Sure, be happy to. Um, Laura, as you know, I'm CEO of CypherTrace. We are a, a, a company that helps make cryptocurrency safe and compliant. Our customers are banks, their cryptocurrency exchanges, and their government agencies, including regulators and law enforcement. And, uh, you know, I got into crypto, well, quite some time ago in the early days of Bitcoin. Well, actually, if I recall, I believe you kind of got into digital currency well before Bitcoin even existed. Can you talk a little bit about that? I did. Yeah, I got interested in cryptocurrency in 1999, I would say, as sort of, you know, as the cypher punk movement was kind of starting to trail off a little bit. And I got to go to the early uh, financial uh, cryptography conferences. So I was at the one in 2000 on Anguilla. I got to meet the early uh, folks um, at DigiCash, uh, David Chelm. I got to meet the e-gold guys who were building a gold-backed digital currency. Mondex, which at the time was was uh, was being promoted by Mastercard, and also the zero knowledge guys from Montreal, who eventually that technology is now sort of some of the foundational technology for zero knowledge proofs that are used in Zcash. Great, and so then can you just? Bring us up to how it is that you started CypherTrace. Sure. So I got interested in Bitcoin in 2011, so a little late to the game. Um, but I did start tracking and reporting how the price of Bitcoin related to cryptocurrency crimes, primarily break-ins into exchanges. Um, but there were some other ones as well. And you could see a linear correlation between the price of Bitcoin. It would drop 30 40% the day after a major crypto theft. And I would report that every year at the Electronic Crime Conference. So I started back then. Um, we were doing some early mining as well, building custom mining rigs, liquid cooling, that kind of stuff as a hobby. 
you know, you make a few tens of Bitcoins, you know, 100 Bitcoin, that kind of thing back then. In 2015, I uh, I had finished. I'd sold a couple of security companies and fintech companies. And um, I was presenting on Bitcoin and Bitcoin security. And effectively, I had a customer come up and say, hey, we would like you to build this. We said, well, OK, yep, great. So we got into it in 2015 with an initial customer. It was a government customer who wanted to help find um, criminals effectively. But from there, we've really grown the company and the technology to help cryptocurrency exchanges with compliance, um, working with regulators on compliance and more recently working with financial institutions so that they can help validate uh, cryptocurrency companies and help expand the banking relationships between crypto companies and the banks. Because it's clear these are merging and they're both, I think, very symbiotic worlds that are going to help drive crypto forward in a big way. And Sean, what about you? Can you explain what you do and also your backgrounds and how you came to work in crypto? Well, I, I've always thought of myself as the Methuselah of uh, Bitcoin, but I've just realized, Dave, you, you, you beat me by two years. <laughs> so uh, I, my career is uh, 48, 49 years in uh, IT, in fact, going back to the era of steam computing, probably. Uh, and I have been uh, largely involved in uh, security and information security through uh, my career until I finished my corporate career. I guess um, around 2012-13, I started to get interested in this new use case for, for crypto, pretty much a bit like Dave, I guess, started getting involved in, in meetups. This was uh, where I was living at the time in the United Kingdom. Uh, and suddenly, before I knew it, because of my more recent than recent experience in the regulated space, uh, folks were asking me for advice, sort of um, uh, one foot in the old regulated world, understanding that, and a lot of startups who wanted to understand how they might be impacted um, going forward. But from there, I got involved in public policy work in the UK, in Whitehall and Westminster, and then uh, in the uh, European uh, Parliament uh, uh, in Brussels. And from there, I was uh, tempted away from being in the uh, from being a uh, poacher to becoming a gamekeeper. I was asked uh, by the government of Gibraltar to architect the um, what has then become the regulatory framework that I architected uh, came into force in the beginning of 2018. So, the idea was to do it just for virtual currencies. But uh, during the, the period of architecting, we opened that up to, to, to cover a broader range blockchain. So it became a DLT provider license. And I guess today you would find analogies between the way we defined it then, uh, a DLT provider, and what uh, is now known as a VASP in this current fat of regulated world. Uh, and so um, that came into force. Uh, other countries then started to follow suit. Uh, and in uh, 2018, in August 18, I, uh, sorry, August 19, I, uh, my tenure as a public servant came to an end. I started to approach uh, retirement. With that, I picked up the mantle of being a poacher once more uh, and uh, came back into the private sector. And uh, XREG uh, is now working uh, with governments, uh, with uh, public authorities such as regulators and uh, financial intelligence units, 
in the public sector, but also working with VASPs in the in the private sector and really working around regulatory policy and the whole area of uh, operationalizing regulation. Uh, and uh, we're a team of uh, of six, all former regulators now, uh, uh, all former poachers who are now a merry band of poachers. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so at the beginning of this episode, I did talk about how the subject for today's episode will be the travel rule. And I think this is one of those topics that is bringing into focus one of the main fears that the cryptocurrency industry or really community maybe more um, have about how the space will develop, which is regulation. And this is kind of an on-the-ground implementation of a new regulation that I think will vastly change how people transact in cryptocurrency or at least what happens on the back end when they do, um, and probably also, frankly, will drive changes in behavior or at least um, drive some of the evolution in, in also the technology that is used to uh, do perform cryptocurrency transactions. So um, just to give people the lay of the land here, because we're going to be using a lot of terms that some people will never have heard yet, um, including such as the travel rule, as I mentioned. Um, but let's maybe just give the high level overview and define some terms. So you mentioned uh, the FATF, FATF, Financial Action Task Force. Uh, we talked about the travel rule. Um, you also, Sean, did bring up the term already, virtual asset service provider or VASP. So can why don't we just define these terms so people know what they are going forward and then we'll dive into more detail. Let's first of all look at the Financial Action Task Force, FATF. FATF is a, an intergovernmental um body that um, has its origins uh, oh, more than 30 years ago. It was set up by what was then the, the G7 or G8, now the G20. Uh, and it was set up specifically um, at the behest of a few major nations that saw uh, a problem uh, with uh, drug trafficking and felt that if they could address the uh, source of funds, the flow of funds, I should say, the movement of funds, they could um, somehow um, beneficially uh, impact this seemingly intractable problem of drug trafficking. Um, and that's the origins of this thing. So it was set up as a body, as an international standards body, to set the rules for anti-money laundering. That was it. Those were its origins. And it, those rules have been updated a few times. And the remit of the organization has been expanded. So now that um, after 9-11, that was expanded to include countering terrorist financing uh, and more recently uh, countering the, uh, the financing for the, of the proliferation of, uh, of weapons of mass destruction. A very catchy sort of uh, title, but a very clear objective there. And of course, now it has an impact on money laundering that's associated with not just drug trafficking and uh, terrorist financing and so forth, but it also has an impact on those who um, are involved in human trafficking, on uh, those who are involved in uh, trafficking of, of, of uh, animals and, and, and so on. So the, the remit has, has, has widened over time. 
it should perhaps be seen as an organization that although it's um, it's got a title of its own, it has its own secretariat. It's really made up of its members, and those members are countries. And there are 39 major countries of, uh, of the world, well, 37 countries and two groupings of countries, such as the European uh, Commission. And it's involved in um, setting the rules, not just for those um, 39 members, but the anti-money laundering rules for some 205 countries around the world. This is through a kind of extended network of organizations. So in effect, pretty much every country in the world is required to follow those standards. Those standards, they may be called the FATF recommendations, but as I have called it before, they're really um, recommendations with consequences. So countries have to follow them. And you could think of it as a kind of quasi-treaty organization setting those rules. And it sets those rules for, for banks, for financial institutions, for other kinds of industries such as uh, casinos or lawyers or accounting firms, real estate firms and so forth. But it also um, now has clarified, it did so in October 2018, clarified that its rules, its standards also apply to virtual assets and virtual asset service providers. And earlier when you said there are consequences for countries that don't enforce it, is it f- primarily financial or economic consequences that they face? I mean, it used to run a, a system of country blacklists. In other words, those countries that didn't comply with the standards. And that would make it difficult, for example, for banks in those countries to do business with banks in those countries that did comply with the standards. Um, it, it, it enforces, if you like, its standards by a, a process of peer review. Uh, the countries um, periodically go and assess each other to really two, two things. Firstly, whether they've got the technical means, in other words, whether they follow the letter of the recommendations, that they've got the laws in place and the powers and so forth to, um, to enforce. Uh, and also how effective they are. In other words, you may have the laws, but do you actually you know, make that stuff happen? And it, it carries out those assessments uh, currently in a sort of 10-year cycle. And it, you can pretty much assume that every country is assessed once every 10 years on its uh, how it complies and how effective it is at complying with those rules. Okay. And so now let's talk to, let's talk about the travel rule because this is what's going <laughs> to, I think, set in motion quite a bit of change across the industry. So what is the travel rule? Well, let's, uh, let, let, let's understand one thing. First of all, the travel rule is just one part of one of 40 recommendations. So it's by no means the, the only thing that is affecting VASPs. And just to be clear about it, what is a VASP? Um, that's a pretty broad definition that's been added. But in the main, think about uh, exchanges, think about custodians, uh, custodial wallet providers, for example. But it does cover a range of other activities. Essentially, anyone who is intermediating in, uh, in the virtual asset um, ecosystem. And virtual assets really go beyond just cryptocurrencies. Again, it's another wide, one of those wide definitions. And would it apply to staking providers? Because I believe staking is going to become a much bigger uh, part of the industry in the coming years. The, the short answer to that is maybe. 
They're not defined specifically, but depending on their role and their function, it may well have that. They may well be considered a a service provider. Yeah. And then what either types of companies or transactions would not be covered by the travel rule? Like I know for with tax purposes, there was a question at a certain time about whether or not crypto to crypto transactions would be taxed in the same way that crypto to fiat. Is there any distinction for things like that? Or like, you know, what, what falls within the purview and what falls outside? So, so there's no distinction between fiat crypto, crypto fiat on the one hand and crypto crypto on the other. Um, all kinds of those intermediated functions uh, are activities that come into scope of a fat of broad set of recommendations. So pretty much all the 40 recommendations now apply to VASPs. And that includes things like having to be licensed or registered, um, not only in one's home jurisdiction, but also in uh, potentially in jurisdictions in which one operates. That's, I think, something that's not yet fully fully uh, appreciated across the industry because different countries will apply this differently. Think of the FATF rules, the FATF recommendations as a baseline. So countries will, and already are, starting to put their own gold plating to those baseline rules. But looking just at your question around the travel rule, the travel rule is, is, is not unique to crypto. It's not unique to virtual assets and VASPs. This is the same rule that is applied to uh, banking and financial institutions, where um, if you imagine uh, transferring money across borders, um, your bank in one country is required to gather some information, hold that information, but also to transfer for that information, if you like, or certain information, certain mandated information, to travel with the transaction to the institution at the receiving end, the beneficiary end. Um, and essentially, that is that base rule is simply being widened out to include transactions between VASPs. And what is the information that has to be provided? Well, there's certain um, required information, such as uh, identifying the originator of the transaction, And that has to be verified information. So that's essentially KYC'd information um, uh, from the uh, originating VASP, the sending VASP, if you like, uh, about um, its client, its customer, uh, and also details. And and that's uh, including things like name, potentially their national identifier, maybe a passport number, for example, maybe their address, and not necessarily all of those things but uh, enough to identify who that person might be. And and that has to be verified in relation to the sender, the originator, uh, and also information about who the intended beneficiary is, although that doesn't have to be verified by the originating VASP. Hmm. And that information has to travel. Now, in the traditional world of bank transfers, um, messages are sent between banking institutions. And so it's very easy for that additional information that's required to travel with the instruction to make a payment. But in crypto, of course, it doesn't work like that. The transfer of value happens typically on a, on a blockchain. Uh, and well, hey, there's nowhere that you can just append that information, nor I suggest would it be wise to do so. 
So that's presented immediately some very significant challenges for the industry. Well, those are challenges which maybe we'll talk about later on, but the industry has certainly come together to, to start to resolve and, and in short order of time. It hasn't been given a lot of time to, to do this. Yeah. And what is the deadline, Dave? Do you know? Well, there's no specific deadline. So every country sets its own regulations. So it's going to be country by country based on their timelines and how they interpret the uh, regulatory guidance from the FATF. So, for example, in the United States says that since 2015 or thereabouts, every cryptocurrency company should have been in compliance already so they would say that they have get, you've been given a, a grace period of four to five years where we haven't come after you. It was mentioned in the Ripple um, issue back in uh, several years ago, but it wasn't the main focus of that investigation and uh, and order. But it was mentioned at the end. But if you talk to FinCEN in the United States, they would say that every cryptocurrency in the United States has been under this regulation for at least five years. In Switzerland, it's already in place, although it goes far further than um, the requirements in the United States to include um, uh, personal transfers in and out of exchanges and VASPs. Um, Singapore uh, is is starting enforcement actions as well. So they say, we'll look at it. It takes effect now and you have to do it. But so there's no specific global time frame. It's really when countries start to um, adopt it, integrate it into their regulations. Another example is the United Kingdom. They intend to do it, but it is not it is not regulated at this time with the FCA. And just to understand a little bit more about which transactions will be covered by this rule, let's say I'm a customer at one exchange like Gemini. I send money to my friend and they want it sent to their Kraken account. Uh, And also FYI, uh, Disclosure Kraken was a sponsor of my show. Then the exchanges will send the info. But if I, let's say that I'm a customer at Gemini, but I send it to my friend's self-custodial wallet, then no information gets sent. And if so, how does Gemini know who the recipient, how does Gemini know that one of them is going to, you know, this other custodial wallet and that, or in the case of the other transaction, that that's not a custodial wallet? <laughs> yeah. So the, this is one of the large technical problems that need to be solved. So how do I know for across all virtual currencies? hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of virtual currencies and chains. How do I know um, whether it's a personal wallet or uh, or um, a custodial wallet? So that's first one. Um, do I know I have to send it or not? And um, same on the inbound. So when I get the transaction, do I know that it came from a personal wallet or do I have to wait for this information to arrive to me from some other VASP or exchange, what have you, to come in. So that is one of the challenges. Another challenge, is, and, and you know, there's a lot of technical detail around it, so how do you do it without creating a global list of every address that belongs to every exchange? So preserving privacy is a big issue that we've been working on. We believe privacy is, is of, of a dramatic importance. You know, this simple idea is, well, we'll just create a database or a blockchain of everybody, this is not, in, or for various reasons, a good idea. 
And then you have other problems around how do I know who's a VASP and how do I know who isn't and what country are they in and how do I stop ones from spoofing each other so that I can reap all of the data, pretend to be a VASP who hasn't signed up yet, get all the customer data from other people. So there's a quite a number of security and privacy issues that have to be dealt with. And of course, it has to be cross-chain. It has to be global. And so these are the technical challenges that combined with the regulatory that you know, we've been working on as an industry. Okay, so I just want to make sure the audience um, has caught on. Essentially, anytime there is a transaction between two custodians, meaning two exchanges or two wallets that are both custodial wallets, then this information will be sent. And if, you know, either for the sender or the recipient that it's someone transacting using their own private keys, managing their own keys, then the information will not be sent. But then I also want to make sure, so it sounds like depending on the jurisdiction that the types of information being sent will differ. And it sounds like, you know, your identity is a key piece of it and who you're transacting with is also a key piece. But then in terms of other things, like when you said in Switzerland that they also include your transaction history a little bit or something, uh, that's. Yeah, they don't include the transaction history, but they're extending it to um, self-custodial wallets where you have to make declarations about who you are. So they've oh. taken it beyond VASP to VASP. They're stretching the boundary to look at, you know, extending it to more self-custodial wallets, which is, you know, challenging and obviously not a great, not a great thing in my opinion. And, and, and actually seemingly out of character for the, I mean, the Swiss famous of Switzerland from uh, 11 or 12 years ago. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, okay. But in, but in terms of the basics, it's who you are, who you're transacting with, and I'm presuming the amount of the transaction, the date, stuff like that. Correct. And a transaction ID so that you can correlate it to the blockchain transaction. Right. One sort of addition to that, I I think it goes beyond just custodial wallets, although that is the easiest way to think about it. If you've got uh, some sort of intermediary function at the other end or one or other end, then you're, you're, you're effectively caught if there is an intermediary at both ends. So there's got to be a VASP broad definition of, of VASP. Think about every kind of financial intermediary in the traditional world. And you kind of got the analogy there. So it, it, it probably is more than just exchange. Well, it is more than just exchanges and custodial wallet providers. Um, and uh, and there has to be a VASP at, at either end. That's, that's the baseline requirement. So if it's VASP to user, individual, uh, or user to, uh, to VASP, or, or it's uh, peer-to-peer, user-to-user, then that's outside the scope. But if there's an intermediary there, it's caught. Is there any minimum transaction thresholds, or is this for any transaction, even if it's for a dollar or something? Well, potentially it could be, for even if it's a dollar. The, the rules are that information has to be captured uh, about a, a customer. So essentially a customer has to be KYC to some degree. There are degrees of of, of how much KYC is done, depending on uh, on value and and risk and a whole set of factors, but um, that has to be done at the start of a what's known as a business relationship. 
essentially, if you open an account, you sign up with someone that could be could constitute a the the start of a business relationship. And if if you've started that business relationship, you've got to be KYC. You may never perform a transaction subsequently. Clearly, of course, if you don't perform a transaction, no information has to to be transferred. There are provisions which say, well, if it's a one-off, what's known as an occasional transaction, if it's a one-off, you haven't signed up, you're just uh, performing a single transaction, um, then there is a, a threshold, which interestingly for crypto is set by FATF lower than it is for most other sectors. Um, but essentially anything that's below $1,000 or 1,000 euros as a one-off transaction where there's no sort of pre-sign-up, no commencement of a business relationship, then um, then it would fall outside. Um, but it's up to countries. They can stipulate lower values or even a zero value. So it's quite feasible that a particular country, and there clearly are some who are going beyond the baseline and saying, you know, we want it for everything. Wow. And then there's also countries like the United States who go above and say, it's 3,000 US dollars. It's not a thousand euros. We where they're setting their limit higher, saying you know if it's under three thousand dollars, then you don't have to do this. Hmm. Okay, well that's a little bit more um, generous or comforting probably to a lot of people in the crypto community. Um, so in a moment we're going to talk about how all this information will be sent. Because as Dave did allude to, it brings up a lot of questions around security and privacy. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Looking for a place to connect with thought leaders, innovators, and blockchain enthusiasts of every level? Welcome to T-Quorum, a weekly virtual series about all things Tezos. Each week will feature presentations about the latest advancements, from baking and staking and developer tooling to DeFi projects and community content that will help the ecosystem grow together. This year, T-Quorum will be opening up its podium to you. If you're interested in presenting, submit your ideas, and the Tezos community will vote on who they'd like to hear from next. Sign up and learn more about the virtual series at tquorum.com. How much in fees are you paying for your crypto purchases? Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases, which means you can buy crypto with a 0% fee. Apart from your crypto purchases, you can also get a great deal on food and grocery shopping too. Get up to 10% back on Uber Eats, McDonald's, Domino's Pizza, Walmart, and many more when you pay with your MCO Visa card. No card? On the Crypto.com app, buy gift cards and get up to 20% back from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, Papa John's, and Domino's. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers till the end of September. Back to my conversation with Dave Jevons and Sean Jones. So as we discussed earlier, there's a lot of sensitive information being sent and it's a lot of valuable information. So I'm curious to know, and as we talked about, this is basically replicating what the banking system already does. So what do banks use? And is that a system that crypto companies could use? Or, you know, what options are they looking at? So banks today, typically for international funds transfer, use the SWIFT system. 
So that means effectively any kind of instruction, whether it's payment instructions, but also stock clearing on an international basis, uh, go through SWIFT. Um, There are over 4,000 banks directly connected to it, but there are also corporations as well. So you can join SWIFT as a private corporation. They have a whole set of messaging standards. In fact, you can even move check images and things if people are still using checks. Um, So they have all these messaging standards. And I I feel like this um, approach is really trying to mimic that, although I think nobody in the crypto industry wants a centralized solution. Could you use SWIFT? I suppose so, but it will incur a lot of cost um, because every message is not free. It's expensive. Um, You still have to have directories, how to look people up. Does this address belong to this exchange or to a a privately uh, custodian wallet? So all of that stuff would still be an issue. Um, I'm not sure everyone wants all of you know, every crypto transaction to be routed through either um, Manassas, which is near Dulles Airport in the United States, or um, through La Hulpe in Belgium, because that's where every message goes through. If you're on the SWIFT system, we think that a much more of a peer-to-peer type of model, which will help uh, contain privacy, contain breaches, uh, make it more attack resilient as a better model. And so what are some of the different standards right now? When I was doing research for this, I came across so many. Uh, SaferTrace has your open source solution, Tresa. Coinbase is about to come out with a white paper for a peer-to-peer joint bulletin board maintained by exchanges, uh, which um, has participation from some of the other big exchanges like Gemini, Bittrex, and Kraken. And the, I also saw Bitco has an API travel rule solution. Nota Bene uh, just launched to, to provide such a thing. Cool BitX also did so. ING is proposing something. <laughs> then there's these other kind of like open standards that I found InterVASP and OpenVASP. Um, why don't we actually, why don't we just do this? Dave, do you want to just tell us about Tresa and then we can talk a little bit about some of these other exchanges or these other uh, solutions? Yeah, so I think that in my view, there's about four different what I would call open efforts that are um, that are going on. So there's InterBAS, which Sean can speak to uh, quite a bit because uh, she was on the leadership team of that, which is um, developing messaging formats. So what do the messages actually look like that contain the information? And I think pretty much I would say most people in the industry have standardized around that as a standard for the message contents. Then you have the overall message flow, which is how do you discover, is, is it a private wallet? Is, a, is it a custodial wallet? Where are they? How do I communicate with them? And there's, in my view, there's, there's pretty much two and maybe two and a half open efforts there. One is the TRISA, which is the Traveral Information Sharing Architecture. It's, I mean, we've contributed to it, but there's you know, every time we have a call, there's 36 companies every week working on it. So there's it's it's not a Cypertrace product or anything. It's an open initiative that, you know, we're helping with. The other one is OpenVASP, which has been led primarily by Bitcoin Suisse. Um, so that is, again, looking at an open um, methodology for exchanging this information, for doing peer discovery and having a directory. And um, we work very closely. So the TRISA working group, the OpenVASP working group work together and we're working on interoperability of the messaging standards and the uh, directory 
and how those would integrate. I would say a third one is BIP75. So that is being promoted by a private company called NetKey, but it is an open um, standard definition that's been around for some period of time. And when you say BIP75, you mean a Bitcoin improvement proposal? Correct. Oh, yes. Yes. So that's been around for several years now. Um, Was not designed to solve this problem, but has been, the people have been working on it, Justin and others at NetKey have been working on it to, um, to, to move it into this direction and to build that. Those to me are the, what I would consider what I know of the open efforts where you have multiple companies. And then there's the Coinbase one, which is um, really U.S. centric, U.S. centric exchanges does not deal with the global problem of discovery was initially a peer to peer mechanism. But to try to get some prototype out, they've gone to a, a private bulletin board system to publish addresses. So I don't think it's a scalable global solution. And they would never say it is. They are saying we want a proof of concept to show U.S. regulators that we're doing something that we can solve this problem in the United States you know, it's not designed at this point as a global solution. That may change, but that's not where it is right now. Everything else you mentioned, as far as I understand, are private companies who have built proprietary solutions that are closed. Um, many country specific, like Coolbitx, is really large to, uh, largely aimed at the Asian market. And they'll, they'll tell you they want to be the swift of the space. They make no bones about it. They want to run every message through them. Um, Shift has another model, which uh, is, is pretty cool. And they're working on interoperability with some of these open standards. But again, you know, run by a private company. Um, and many of these other ones that you mentioned are private company specific things. So what I think the takeaway is, Several really open efforts around standards, interoperability, and then private companies offering the things in their own country. And therefore, there will not be one solution. There will have to be interoperability. It's, you know, it's going to be a free market, which is great because anyone who wants to build solutions can. But it does mean that for the foreseeable future, there are going to be 5, 10, 15, who knows, solutions out there, which means interoperability is going to be critical. This thing is not going to start next year and suddenly be solved. We have other issues, which we call the sunrise problem. We'll talk about that later, if you wish. Well, yeah. Why don't we just start with the first one about how there isn't going to be one single solution and how actually some of these um, basically are more decentralized. Some of them are seem more kind of crypto and then some of them seem more, you know, traditional kind of VC startup-y. Just from a logistical standpoint, it seems like it would be pretty burdensome on countries if there were, you know, five or <laughs> several different solutions that they had to use, right? Because, well, you tell me. So let's say, so let's say that, um, you know, I'm Coinbase and I'm sending to... Or that one of my customers wants to send to their friend who uses Kraken, then uh, Kraken maybe uses, let's say, a different travel role solution provider than Coinbase. So then, how how does that information get shared? Do they just have to both adopt the other's solution too, or or what? The reality is that a vast. I mean, it's not. I think so much troublesome for countries. It's probably not troublesome at all for countries. They 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 agnostic on the question. Uh, it's troublesome for VASPs because um, 
you know, I think Dave is right. At the moment, I've certainly counted uh, in excess of 15 projects out there of the different sort of broad categories that, that Dave has outlined. And, you know, some of them will, will make it to market, some of them will not make it to market. Um, but others may may emerge. And in fact, we, we've seen even over the last year, folks who weren't in the running at the beginning, if you like, as this uh, issue emerged, have, have joined the fray. And you've mentioned a couple of mainstream uh, financial institutions that are involved in, in, in their solutions. Um, pretty much, though, across the board, there isn't a, there, there is no obvious single solution out there. And I would echo Dave's comment. I don't think this would be a good thing necessarily, but having 15 is also not good um, because the costs of trying to connect up to 15 different solutions and the complexity involved in that and indeed the discovery exercise. So you've got the challenge of figuring out whether uh, you're you're, going to be involved in uh, a transfer of value with a wallet at the other end that has a VASP associated with it. Then you've got the problem of discovering who that VASP is. And, and now you've got the problem of also discovering um, which networks or which solutions they're employing. These, this is a whole cascade of issues. Certainly when we started the, uh, the InterVASP project, this was, uh, its, it's proper title was the uh, InterVASP Messaging Standards. And this was partly to short circuit some of the challenge uh, associated with having many different systems. So we said, well, you know, the, the way the data will get from one VASP to another will be solved by different solutions. One or a few may emerge as the leading solutions. And they may be in the open space. They may be in the very closed networks that some uh, VASPs are, are building between one another, and, or they may be in the proprietary space or combination. Any which way you cut it, at the end of the day, it's the same amount of data, the same pieces of information that have to move from one VASP to another. And it would save an awful lot of time if that data payload were defined in a standard way that a VASP at the sending end would know that regardless of where in the world that value is being transferred to, the information that goes with it can be understood, understood as was intended. And the, the receiving VASP can, can get this information and understand, oh, this bit's the name. This bit's the city where they live. Oh, this is a passport number. This is a date of birth. Just to be able to understand that, forgetting for a moment that not the whole world speaks the same language, yet alone uses the same character set. So there are a lot of things that a technical standard, which is what the InterVASP Messaging Standard 101, IVMS 101, was about, was really to short-circuit that and make it possible for the payload data, whatever, however that is transferred, to be understood as intended. You're saying InterVASP will make it so that it doesn't matter if Gemini and Kraken are using different um, kind of front-end solutions because the information in them will be standardized. Absolutely, you're right. It's not, an, it's not a solution at all. It is simply a technical standard. You know, it's a, it's a document that's published that says this is how the name is set out. This is how to deal with a scenario where uh, the, the original name is in Korean, but you have to communicate this to someone who's in Switzerland, for example. Um, uh, this is what a date of birth lo uh, looks like. In other words, you know, is it the year first, the month second, and the, the date third, or how, how is that constructed? 
so that everyone involved in that information sharing exercise uh, can at least understand the data. They can send it knowing that it can be understood and it can be received knowing that it's coming to you in a way that was intended. Okay, so actually maybe it won't be as burdensome if different custodians are using different software. But another major concern I imagine a lot of people in the crypto community will have is how this will be secured, especially if there does end up being redundancy where for whatever reason, you know, we find that even for one transaction, you have two different solution providers having to send the information for various reasons. I mean, it just creates more places where people's information can be compromised. And, you know, the other scenario is also not super um, comforting, where perhaps maybe there will be one solution that tends to be the dominant one and sees almost all the transaction flow in it, anybody who gains access to that will have access to extremely valuable information. So how is security being handled for these uh, different systems? So we've put a lot of thought into security around systems architecture on the Trissa project. So CypherTrace has contributed to it, but MIT, um, a whole bunch of exchanges and others have really thought about it quite a bit. And definitely a centralized exchange or centralized data exchange model, uh, we believe is very dangerous. It's counter to crypto. Not only, as you point out, Laura, is it something that you know, if somebody were able to get into it and the information were not end-to-end encrypted and the middleman could look at it, absolutely it could be a privacy disaster. Um, but also it's it's also availability. So if let's say the world went to a centralized system, even if it was end-to-end encrypted and they couldn't intercept the messages, it's a potential DDoS attack for a nation state or anyone else who wants to take crypto offline. So if you have one centralized service that if you want to transfer between VASPs, well, if you want to take crypto out, just kill that thing for a long period of time and no one can send money between VASPs anymore. So there's Either a lot that or, of, or they'll just do it without without complying with the VATF rules. But anyway. <laughs> well, sure. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so that's a thing. So I, we believe that it needs to be peer-to-peer exchange of the information. So that create what that does is it creates resilience because there's no central place to take it out. It means that you're only exchanging the information with the person that you have, the, the vast the counterparty that you have to send it to. Um, now, then the other benefits of this is if you have a directory service that uh, you can look up these VASPs around the world and then understand what their information protection at least requirements are or profiles or what have you, then you can start to make decisions about, do I feel comfortable sending my customer's information to this VASP? And some, you know, companies won't. And so one of the things that we've been working on on the TRISA project, as well as with OpenVASP, is a direct and the GDF, the Global um, Digital Foundation, Digital Commerce Foundation, is we've been working on um, a, 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 one, a questionnaire and a verification uh, process for who is a VASP, where are they, what is their jurisdiction, what protocols do they support. So as we've talked about, you're going to have to support multiple for some period of time, if not forever. And and what are the endpoints of it? What is the security of it? What are the certificates, digital certificates around it? But also, what is your basic information security policy? So not how you do it, but um, information about how do you protect the customer's data. 
And then I think that helps that helps VASPs as we move into this world to determine, I feel comfortable sending my data to this company that's going to hopefully protect it or not. I don't feel comfortable. Therefore, we're not going to allow direct VASP to VASP transfers to XYZ company in some country that has no data protection. Hmm. And one other thing I wanted to ask about was here we've been talking about cryptocurrencies this whole time, but the FATF did release a long report all about what they kept calling so-called stable coins throughout the report. They never oh, just yes. <laughs> they never just called it stable coins. Um, they even in the title they called it so-called stable coins. Um, but anyway, uh, you know what I call it? I call it a so-called report. <laughs> <laughs> I know so it was. I don't know why they didn't just go with the term, but anyway. Um, so you know, I didn't fully really understand in the report how this would affect. Because I mean, they did make the distinction between centralized and decentralized stablecoins. Um, but even with decentralized stablecoins, they were saying, well, there generally is a team that you can identify that launched the coin. Um, but even for like a centralized stablecoin, it wasn't totally clear to me what exactly those creators of those stablecoins would need to track. Is it that every time somebody creates a tether that, uh, the, um, the parent company, which I think is, Ifinex, or it's somehow related to, I'm just blanking on the company, that they would need to track who that is. And then do they need to track where they send their tethers initially? Or, you know, how does that all work? And then as far as I can tell, I believe also these rules could even apply to central bank digital currencies, or do those get a pass because they represent fiat? Or, you know, how does all this apply outside of cryptocurrencies? So, Taking the last point first, uh, central bank digital currencies are outside of scope. They're expressly excluded from the definition of a virtual asset. Pretty much everything else that you've mentioned, whether, whether they're considered to be stable coins of limited scope or whether they're so-called <laughs> global stable coins of global scope um, is really beside the point. Uh, they, they do fall within scope. And I think if you look at the direction of travel, you can assume that if you're someone who makes a buck on the back of some transaction, you're going to be the one somehow along the line that is going to be brought in to into scope. Um, so truly, something that's truly decentralized, where nobody's making any money, nobody's gaining from the process uh, other than the users, uh, the, the sender and the recipient. Uh, I think you're going to assume that that, that, that that definition over time is going to suck in more and more people. Folks are going to get more and more imaginative about how they decentralize stuff. If you're looking to make some money out of decentralized stuff, you're going to be sucked back in. And there's an inevitability to that, I think. And, but what about centralized stable coins? You know, what do those creators have to do uh, in terms of tracking information or sending information on? Well, of course, if it's within their ecosystem, they may be the VASP at both ends. So, of course, they've got the information on both both customers, if one will, both holders, both stablecoin holders. Uh, if, however, it's moving between VASPs or between the um, uh, between the issuer and a VASP, the, the issuer is almost certainly going to be considered a VASP of some sort. And so you've got a vast, vast transfer, and you, you, you're caught by the same 
requirements to capture certain information, to verify that information, or to do the KYC, the due, due diligence stuff. Uh, and um, uh, where there's another VASP at the other end, you're going to have to send the required information. That is the information about your verified customer as the sender and the intended recipient. And it's then up for the VASP at the other end to do due diligence on his customer. But only at the creation redemption points, right? It wouldn't be like every tether is being tracked, you know, as it changes hands until it gets redeemed or nothing like that. If it changes hands between uh, between uh, one VASP and another, then that information moves, that travels, if we're looking at the travel rule implication. And if uh, that chain is broken, in other words, there's not a VASP at one end or the other, then subject to certain national variations, which I think Dave's already mentioned, Switzerland, which is a very clear variation on the baseline. But uh, in broad terms, if it breaks the chain because there's not a VASP at both ends, then um, you may only need to keep information about your customer and you don't have to send any of that information to anyone. Right, but what I'm saying is Tether itself, the company does not have to do it for every step. They only do it at the creation and redemption points. Yeah, that's right. my understanding. Now, the, the, the effectively, the... You know, the recommendation doesn't go into great detail. It basically says all that stuff we wrote about applies here. It's really um, pretty simply what it says. Okay. So and- it turns out to some extent around the nuances of it. I think, you know, right now it's not dealing with creation of cryptocurrency. It's not dealing with mining of crypto. It's not dealing with issuance. It's really about when there's an end user customer moving that information back and forth. Now, so, for example, if you think about like stable coins as a settlement mechanism between VASPs, maybe, maybe not. So you probably don't, you know, it's not really a per customer thing. It's a settlement end of day type of settlement mechanism. Um, you probably don't have to you probably just say I'm VASP. I'm the customer. I'm the VASP and you're the recipient. You're the VASP. And you probably don't have to bundle 500 people's stuff into it as far as we know. But I think it's open for interpretation at this point in time. I, I take a slightly different view on that. I think that um, the, the the settlement, if you think about the traditional financial services world, there's the the communication of the of the of the payment instruction. You know, bank A telling bank B, make these funds available to someone. That's quite separate from the settlement between the banks. But if you're talking about the the, so the information that has to flow in the traditional world goes with that payment instruction. And I think every movement of value between two parties where there's a VASP involved at either end, that information about sender and receiver has to uh, has to move, regardless of whether there's some kind of net settlement mechanism. But the placing of, um, of liquidity, say, uh, between VASPs, um, that isn't about uh, an underlying transaction, that, that probably won't attract. Uh, there's no information to transfer with it. So I think you can always look to the banking sector to look for the analogies because actually that's all they've done is take the existing rules and say they also apply to, to virtual assets, to crypto, and, hey, industry, you work it out, and countries, you work out how you regulate your VASPs to make sure they comply with your rules. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask about was how you thought that this rule would affect privacy coins, particularly on exchanges. I mean, obviously, if a privacy coin is on an exchange, well, I, hmm, 
Yeah, I don't know how this applies to something like Monero, but you know, with Zcash, there's a public and there's a shielded transaction. But I did see that the Korean arm of OKX delisted its privacy coins, most likely due to FATF rules next last fall. So in general, I wondered if you had any prognostication on what this would mean for privacy coins. Yeah, I mean, it applies. You know, I work with Zcash, I would say, every week um, uh, with the electric coin company, you know, who's one of the you know major players in the Zcash space. Um, you know, they would argue that Zcash natively supports the travel rule because you can, you know, attach information with a view key that could actually literally move with the transaction. But I mean, this would apply to every every privacy coin as well. Remember, we're talking about an out-of-band transactional information exchange before you do the actual blockchain transaction. So to be compliant, whether it's Monero, Zcash, Dash, or anything else that's yet to be invented, if it's, you have to be able to identify, is it to a VASP? or a private wallet. And if it's to a VASP, you have to send that information and correlate it with a transaction so that it can be correlated at the receiving end. And, and the extension of that is that if you can't do that, then you can't affect that transfer of value. If you're yeah. a VASP and you, you're unable to meet that criteria, whatever the circumstances, well, obviously there are very specific challenges in being able to do that with shielded transactions or with those uh, enhanced privacy coins that simply don't, that, that shield effectively all movement, then um, you, you simply can't support that, uh, that transfer because you can't comply with the law in your country. You can certainly provide trading facilities. So for example, you buy, as, a, as an exchange, you buy Monero from you know a, a known vendor or a miner. You can certainly support trading on your platform, the ability for people to buy and sell and make money, et cetera. It's the transfer in and out by private individuals that would be uh, would fall under this regulation. So you know, one thing that I'm sure you guys have been watching in recent months that I feel is really developing between the crypto community. Or, or at least a certain segment within the crypto community and analytics companies is a certain kind of antagonism because of the general cypherpunk philosophy and of this new world that we're entering where cryptocurrency is going from the fringes to becoming adopted by the mainstream. And here we're just talking about basically applying some <laughs> pretty basic tenets of the banking system to cryptocurrencies. And so I was wondering, especially Dave, I think for you, you were talking about you ha how you have these roots in the cypherpunk world. And I wondered how you square this work that your company is doing with the cypherpunk philosophy. And if you have any opinion on that um, relationship that I talked about between the community and and the this new world that we're entering. I don't think anyone wanted, in our opinion, at least in my opinion, in the crypto side, nobody wanted this move. I think there's way better ways to deal with this, in my view, which are much more crypto centric, which aren't, you know, folks who spent 35 years regulating banks. Um, but that's the world that we're in. I think there's far better ways to to solve this problem, to be honest, um, and maintain way better privacy and not spew people's information all around the world to VASPs that you don't know about. I, but this is the world we live in. So I have two choices. 
I can either say I'm going to do nothing and let the regulators do whatever and not be technically informed. Or I can step in as a technical person who understands the privacy constraints and and be involved and create the bridge between the community and hopefully influence them to think about privacy, influence them to think about um, the implications and also the um, unintended consequences of what they're proposing. Because let's face it, there's a lot of unintended consequences that are going to come out of this that are not what they intended. So it's either stand back and let a train wreck happen or at least try to like help some way to represent the community, to bring it in, to help influence it, to bring the privacy community, to bring the, you know, the privacy coin community into it, to work with them. That was my choice. So what are some of those unintended consequences that you believe could happen? Well, I mean, the first one is you're spraying people's information all around the world You've now made it highly valuable to break into smaller companies because you're going to be able to identify people around the world. So I think it's a big privacy problem. You've just basically taken protecting people's data and made it, let's say, a thousand times more difficult because you're going to have a thousand VASPs out there that are going to have other people's data that aren't their customers. That's a big one. I think the second one is going to be, um, well, then everyone will just move everything to private wallets. Why would you do vast vast transactions? Your transaction fee will be doubled, but um, or more. But you know, move everything to a private wallet and then send it on, and then none of this makes any sense anyway. So there's a lot of different implications out there. I mean, we also are going to have um, the sunrise problem, which is that this regulation is going to be implemented country by country. It's going to take years to get implemented. Different countries will implement it differently. So what does that mean if there's enforcement in one country? Let's say Singapore or the United States decides to enforce strictly and like actually start fining people. Does that mean that if France hasn't implemented it, you can't send money there? So does that create a restriction in the in the market? You now no longer have global liquidity. So none of these, in my view, are positive. So these are all unintended consequences. There's others too, but yeah, there's a lot that needs to be thought through, and this is why I chose to get involved and CypherTrace chose to get involved because it's either stand away and let it let people who don't know anything about it like define it or at least help be an industry representative in the room, literally and figuratively in the room with these people to try to show them here's the problems, here's alternate solutions. And here's the problems that you're going to see and face. And, you know, we were asked to list it. We worked with 50 different VASPs and others. You know, we work closely with Coinbase and others just to and other VASPs as well around the world to just try to get their issues with it and represent that out so that hopefully we can influence policy in a positive way that doesn't, you know, destroy the fundamental value of crypto. And speaking more about the unintended consequences, it did occur to me that this maybe would spur more developments in privacy technology or more usage of privacy technology, such as mixers, or um, it might drive <laughs> it might drive certain groups of people who transact in cryptocurrency to simply cash out in less compliant jurisdictions <laughs> or, and, and broadly, probably there's just going to be a lot more people. Absolutely. Without a doubt, there will be regulatory arbitrage, both among users and companies who want to move to less regulated jurisdictions. Absolutely. And they should. 
but that's just a going to happen. It's just, it, you know, it's a balloon. You squeeze it in one place and it'll grow in another. You can't stop crypto. You can't stop crypto what? And you shouldn't. Yeah. It should be available. Uh, it should be available to everyone. I, you know, we just unfortunately have this, you know, this world of financial controls that are out there that are only going to get more stringent. They're applying to crypto. I would rather them take a view which is more more enlightened, which is there's ways to solve this problem that aren't throwing people's customer data all around the world, that aren't assigning account numbers, that aren't changing the way that we do crypto, that you know, I'd rather see that emerge, but that's not going to happen unless people like us are involved in that that discussion. Because otherwise, they're just going to slap all the banking regs on, and that's what we're going to have. Is this thing's going to look like a glorified, you know, wire transfer system? <laughs> yeah, and one other thing I imagine is that this will probably prompt a lot more people to manage their own keys. So um, there's <laughs> there's kinds of uh, I, I don't know. There's probably. Uh, both good and bad uh, to that. Um, but I did want to ask a little bit more about the sunset thing because, or, or just in general, like, you know, what do you think the next few years as this gets implemented, what will that look like? And and are there any other major milestones that are on the horizon that people should be on the lookout for? Well, I think uh, you've got to look at uh, this deadline question that you asked uh, a wee while ago. That uh, Dave is quite right. There was no sort of uh, deadline. The deadline was uh, back in uh, October 2018 when the uh, when the recommendations were changed and it became an, uh, countries became obliged to do something about it. Okay, took till summer of 19 before there was the guidance for countries that might explain what that could look like. Um, but there, as, as has already been said, those guidelines are pretty high level. And so countries, well, you've got advanced countries who have folks who understand this stuff. The U.S. Um, has a regime that already supports this. And, and the U.S., for instance, says these rules have applied forever. And certainly since they clarified the position what, five years ago now, something like that. Um, but other countries that have absolutely nothing in place. And so the sunrise problem emerges because in reality, you've got 200 deadlines as each country brings in its own laws and sets its own deadlines that VASPs now have to comply. Well, there are countries, uh, probably about 30, 35 countries that have now done something to uh, bring the uh, recommendations, the global recommendations into their national legislation. But quite a few of those have either not brought in anything yet for the travel rule because they know there are no solutions out there, so they can't, or they have brought them in but have simply said, look, we're not going to enforce them or we're giving some regulatory forbearance uh, until a solution is available and keep the pressure on the industry to actually solve all these many different challenges so that you end up with an end-to-end, -end, uh, a perfect solution. But you're still going to have countries bringing them in, one this month, one next month, three the month after, and so on and so on. And if you look at how the travel was brought into the uh, banking sector, that was exactly the same problem. It applied in, in some countries very quickly. The majority of countries took another two or three years to bring in the legislation and then to start to uh, uh, bring in the regulations to support it. And then you had the stragglers who took up to, what, I think seven, eight, nine years before they had all complied. And this is not going to be any different than that. 
Meanwhile, you've got VASPs all over the world who have this asymmetry in regulation. Not only the requirement to be licensed or registered in their own jurisdictions, the possibility that they may have to be licensed or registered in some other jurisdictions, because those countries then say, oh, well, if, you're, if you've got a customer in our country, even though you're not based here, you still also have to be regulated in our country. And then you've got the mismatch over the travel rules. Some countries will uh, have the legislation in place, the rules in place. Other countries may not. So, you know, it takes two VASPs to tango, and yet one one VASP is subject to rules, and the other one hasn't got any rules yet to apply. I mean, this is going to be an ongoing story and itself a, a challenge, a challenge of uncertainty, a challenge of uh, asymmetry in enforcement. And... Um, to be honest, many of the solutions that are out there today are only part of them. I think Dave has very eloquently made the point that some of the solutions are um, geographic, you know, those for the U.S. and North America on the one hand, those in Asia on the other hand, different solutions that are certainly not yet um, global in nature and not comprehensive in nature, not end-to-end. -end. Uh, and meanwhile, amidst all that confusion, you've got data that's being thrown around in an unregulated way, and that also is a huge challenge. Um, I couldn't agree with Dave more. The, um, the privacy issues are massive. They are the same privacy issues that happen with banks. You know, your bank will send your information to a, I don't know, a bank in Brunei or in, uh, or in North Korea, or, well, probably not North Korea, <laughs> but um, uh, certainly in some oh, other sure. part of the world, uh, and your information about the fact you sent this money to someone is 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 held by that bank. You don't know who that bank is. You don't necessarily know what's going to be done with that information. But it's certainly a, a much bigger problem when you think that this is going to apply to an unlimited range of virtual assets. So in the you know, payments world, there are 200 and some uh, currencies or thereabouts. You've got thousands of virtual assets today. We could be talking in 10 years' time. I, there's a part of me that kind of hopes it'll happen, but you could be talking about 100,000 uh, different kinds of virtual assets, especially when you start to think about this applying not just to, to cryptocurrencies, but to a whole raft of digitized assets of one form or another. They would still qualify as virtual assets. Uh, and you've got VASPs who are not, yet regulated in the way the banking sector is regulated globally to global standards. Um, and then you've got a raft of different privacy requirements. Uh, EU, obviously, with its GDPR, but you're seeing other jurisdictions now with their own flavors of, of privacy rules, and they have to be mapped onto all of the same stuff. It's, it's, going to, it's going to keep me occupied right the way up to and probably beyond my retirement. <laughs> All right. And Dave, did you want to add anything? Well, I mean, I think it's important for industry to get involved. So more exchanges, more companies that are either doing analytics or um, anybody who's doing currency swap services. This is going to affect all of those companies. And we'd like to see more engagement, more education. You wouldn't believe the number of exchanges that I talk to on a weekly basis who've never heard of it. And oh boy. it's, oh yeah, no, it's coming. And this can be, the goal, end goal can be served without breaking crypto and without, you know, spreading people's information all over the world. 
And I think the sunrise problem is a big one. Um, I think we're going to see five years of turmoil around this thing. Um, the good news is I think many com- countries recognize there aren't good solutions. We've educated them that the sunrise problem exists. It's now in the vernacular. They talk about it every time there's a meeting. So that's good. They understand there, you know, this isn't easy. It's not trivial. And I think there will be forbearance on hopefully on enforcement and let the industry come up with better ideas, better solutions. Yeah, I think to its credit, this industry has uh, mobilized super fast and super well. Um, yes, I agree that there are a lot of folks who still don't really understand what the what the requirements are going to be. Even if they've heard of it, they don't understand all of the implications. Uh, and that itself is a, is a challenge. But if you look across industry, you've seen it get together very fast on the various projects that we've talked about in this program and also on, on technical standards such as the Intervast standards. To get an international standard on messaging in the traditional world might take three years. It was done in 18, 19 weeks. And this industry has stepped up to the challenge, but let's be absolutely clear. Dave is 101% right on this one. Um, This is going to go on for years and it's going to be in a state of flux. And how it settles in five to 10 years' time will not necessarily be how it looks like today. Yeah. If there's anything I've learned covering crypto, it's that this industry moves very fast. Um, so we will have to see how this all plays out. It, it does sound like it will be a little bit messy, but hopefully um, it will actually maybe not be as scary and a transforming of the industry as people expect or hope. Okay. So where uh, can people learn more about each of you and your companies and also about the travel role? Well, um, uh, the, the information about the uh, the fat of recommendations in their entirety, which include, uh, which of course include the travel rule, can be found on the fat of website. You can Google that fat of uh, virtual assets guidance. You'll it'll come up in the top uh, top couple of um, of search results. Um, in terms of the technical standard, the InterVAS messaging standard, IBMS 101 that we talked about, it's free to download. Uh, any VASP anywhere in the world, anyone with an interest can download it from intervasp.org. Uh, and anyone who wants to uh, find out more from those of us who are in the industry helping folks, uh, well, you can see the uh, the name there, xreg, uh, xreg.consulting. Um, and, and, and you can reach us, uh, reach us that way. Dave. Yeah. So, I mean, I think everybody who's listening probably knows I'm at CypherTrace, so you can catch me over there. Um, but on the open standard side of things, the working group, the governance model, um, look at trissa.io. So that's T-R-I-S-A. So Travel Rule Information Sharing Alliance. Uh, .io, and you can find GitHub over there to get open source. You can find um, various articles and white papers about security models, threat models, um, how these things work. And then also I would recommend um, InterVASP, uh, sorry, OpenVASP, InterVASP, as, uh, as Sean said, but also OpenVASP. So look up OpenVASP and look up their standards as well. And um, also the BIP75 Uh, are all open uh, standards as well. Great. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. To learn more about Dave and Sean and Cypher and X-Reg, as well as the travel rule, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the shows on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.